You are Locked On Horn Frogs. Your daily podcast on the TCU Horn Frogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Hey, welcome to Locked On Horn Frogs. Uh, I'm Steven Simcox. My friend Matt Jennings is with me, and last week we had a lot of fun. We got to laugh and joke about TCU beating Baylor, which was a hilarious thing that did actually happen. Uh, on Saturday, things did not go as well. Horn Frogs lost 63-14, or 63-17, excuse me. Doesn't really matter, but I'll give them the extra three points. They got 63-17. to 17. Uh, Colt Ellison scored a touchdown, so that was a fun thing that happened. But other than that, not really much going on for TCU. Before we do that, though, uh, Matt, Texas lost to Kansas again. <laughs> and, uh, I know we shouldn't really talk noise because our team is terrible. But, and playing uh, Kansas next week. And playing Kansas next week. And I'm not sure that they're going to beat Kansas next week. <laughs> I do kind of feel better that KU got the dub this past week. But uh, anyway, but we'll, we'll handle that later. Let's, let's just take a moment. I mean, I say this with no sarcasm. The most embarrassing loss of the season for TCU might have been losing to Texas at home because they are terrible. They have lost five in a row. And, uh, yeah, Steve Sarkeesian, I think you put it really well. He's kind of already gone through the whole life cycle of a, of a Texas coach taking an L. 57 to 56. I gave up 57 points to the mighty Jayhawks last night. Yeah, it's, uh, things are rough down in Austin. Um, this is, this is the thing. It's one, this is worse than Charlie Strong's loss to Kansas. It's unequivocally worse because it's at home because, um, this is year one of, sorry, Charlie Strong. Like that was the loss that like kind of shut the book. Like Charlie was on his way out anyway, but like, that was like the definitive, like, this is, you're making a move, right? This is year one a year one in which you thought Sark was going to take you from like being a consistent top 25, but not competing at the level you wanted to kind of team to go from, and you thought Sark was going to take you to the next level. And instead, to your point, they've lost five in a row for the first time since I think the fifties. 56. And, yeah. and um, you're losing it. You're losing to Kansas and you're losing to Kansas at home. You know, you want to know, Steven, do you know, just off the top of your head, do you know the last time that the Kansas Jayhawks beat the Texas Longhorns in Austin? Do you know the last time that happened? I'm going to guess never. It literally had never happened before. (laughs) It had never happened. It was – you can go back to the beginning of record-keeping in college football. It had never, ever happened. It is is very, very bad. And it's it's almost worse that – they came back and looked like they were going to steal the win back. Yeah. And then went to overtime and lost. It was, it was really, really bad. It was really bad. So yes, it's very, very funny. I agree with you that kind of like TCU getting their lightning in a bottle uh, game out of the way last week against Baylor. And then just absolutely laying an egg this week. I think Kansas getting their lightning in a bottle game against Texas on the road this week might bode well for TCU next week, but obviously uh, we've got five days to talk about that. Um, so I guess we can talk about um, the game that, that, that Kansas beating Texas. Let's talk about the game that that result distracted everybody from, which is TCU getting shellacked by Oklahoma State. 
Yeah, that was a blessing. I mean, that game, like that game last night was on Fox, national TV, Tim Brando, Spencer Tillman on the call. And, you know, like frogs moved the ball a little bit on the first couple drives. And after that, Oklahoma State really shut them down. Um, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on the game itself, but I do have some more big picture questions. And that Texas conversation actually kind of segues well into what I wanted to hit on first because UT. I mean, I've, I've seen this narrative kind of going around today. I don't think Steve Sarkeesian should be fired, but uh, that's starting to come up. And I'm, I'm hearing people say, well, Texas was a mess when he took over, which I get like in a macro sense, I get what they're saying. But UT was seven and three in 2020. I mean, they were, Tom Herman was always a meme and just an easy target because of who he was. Uh, but they were, a win at home against Iowa State away from playing for a Big 12 championship against Oklahoma. And it, it felt like when they hired Sark, it was supposed to be, okay, plug and play, let's go. We're going to immediately take the next step. And I've, I've sort of felt like TCU was kind of in that territory. I think they still most likely finished the year five and seven, which is bad, but not horrendous. Um, but last night was really bad. Or Saturday night, you're listening to this on Monday. Saturday night was really bad, Matt. Like, it was not close. And I know I know you have an interim coach and some of the shine and the motivation from, from Gary being dismissed has worn off. But where do you think the team is? Because that looks like a group against Oklahoma State that is in a total rebuild where whoever is coming in might have to just clear – the the whole cutboard and say okay let's start from from scratch and try to build build from there yeah I think it's a it's an interesting question it's something that comes up I think with every new coach and hire which is like hey do you get like what some people call like a year zero situation where it's like the first year yeah. like we just doesn't count um it's it's to your point total rebuild you're implementing new scheme you're getting you're you're whether it's the transfer portal, transfer portal or recruiting, you're getting your own guys in there and, and you're building from scratch, right? Um, to your point, that was not what Texas was supposed to be um, because they recruit a top 10 class every single year. Um, and so that shouldn't be what happens. I, I don't think TCU is a total rebuild because I really do think that they have, I like certainly their starting players and in some cases, even what their depth looks like at multiple position groups across the roster, right? I like what they have at um, I like what they have at linebacker. I like what they have at safety when they're not hurt, which they're pretty banged up there right now. Um, I'm a little concerned about corner in the future, especially if Trey Hodges and Tomlinson um, isn't around after this season. Um, but in but uh, in general, on uh, on defense, I'm, I'm okay with I'm okay with what they have. Running back, receiver. Even quarterback, you know, I, I, I feel in general pretty good about what they have, the skill positions on offense. To me, the, if there is a place on the roster where there is a need for, like, tear it down, completely redo it, is along uh, uh, in the trenches on both sides of the ball, right? Because that's what we've been talking about all season. Defensive line, and we saw it again last, uh, on Saturday, they got just run over in the run game. They are – breathtakingly bad against the run and they still can't rush the passer and 
the rushing the passer thing has been a problem for about two years, uh, two, three years, um, ever since Ben Banigou and LJ Collier left, um, just have not been able to consistently get pressure. The run thing is the, the stop and the run thing is new, um, but it's been the like the giant gaping hole on this defense all year. And um, that to me doesn't seem like something that is easily fixed um, unless you just the next guy is able to just knock it out of the park with whether again grabbing somebody in the transfer portal or um, making a late grab of, of a really high quality defensive lineman probably not before early signing day because you just don't have time but before the second signing day in February if there's somebody still out there that you can snag but um, so yeah that that to me on, on the defensive line and then the offensive line we've talked about that at length this season uh, this season um, player development wise um, it's just, like they just can't they can't block effectively um, in the past game they're a little bit better at run blocking but like it they're just they they you know, it doesn't matter if it's Max Duggan, doesn't matter if Chandler Morris, they get, you know, they're, they're getting hassled all the time. And so those are the two position groups that I'm like, if whoever the next guy is, is going to have to address those two things. And then if you can do those things and just get to yourself to like a net zero and average, like, like national average at both those position groups, then I think you've got a chance to like be a fun, exciting team, not a team that's going to win a conference title, but a, a team that's going to be competitive and can, and can surprise some people. But when you're getting bullied on both sides of the ball um, in the trenches, it's just really, really hard, you know? And, and that's the thing is, is if, if they, if you change what they're doing at either of those position groups, multiple games this year, probably flip. They, they probably beat SMU. If they're not getting gashed in the run game that they were, they probably beat Texas to your point. And they don't have that in, what now looks like a very embarrassing loss on your record. You probably beat West Virginia. Um, like those, uh, you, you're just a better, you're a better team. And, um, you know, it's, it's a little cliche to say that it starts in the trenches, but it, but it really kind of does. And those are the, that's really the thing that separates the best teams in most conferences from the rest. And so that's what I'll be to your, so that's a long way to answer your question, but no, I don't think it's a full rebuild, but I do think there are significant, um, roster issues, particularly at those two position groups that you, the, the next guy has to address immediately. Yeah, I totally agree with you on the O-line, D-line thing, especially the, the D-line situation. It's just, it's been a failure all year long, which brings me to a candidate that has come up uh, in, in Sonny Dykes. And Sonny has an extension in front of him at SMU. I'm hearing some chatter that that might resolve itself this week. We might get some news on if he's going to uh, stick around or at least increase his buyout, one of the two. Um, I, if, if CSU hired Sonny Dykes, I would not be – like, I would not consider that a disaster. It would also not excite me. But the, the fact that they are bad up front has given me more pause the more I think about him. Um, just because I, I know SMU ran the ball really well against TCU. But he he doesn't strike me as a dude that's going to have a huge focus on building from the inside out and wanting to be a physical football team. Um, so I'm I'm more skeptical of that potential situation with the personnel that TCU has currently, just because I'm not sure this is like a plug and play situation where if you just kind of improve the offense and rework some things on defense, suddenly you're, you're a really good team, Matt. 
I agree. You know, I said this last week. I think Sonny Dykes is a solid hire if that's where TCU decides to go. Um, to your point, it kind of seems like maybe that was where TCU was leaning initially. And then after the initial round of in- uh, interviews, um, you know, other other guys, uh, I think the, the name that stands out the most is Billy Napier, is the guy who is really gaining a lot of steam lately. Um, uh, and, and Billy Napier is the opposite of that, right? Like he is, um, while Sonny Dykes is a, I'm going to bring in like a wide open scheme. We're going to go fast. We're going to spread the field. We're going to play um, like quintessential Texas spread football which I think is ideal for what TCU wants to do, what TCU can recruit. But to your point, it's not um, necessary. He's not a guy who's, who's going to be known for like, I'm going to control, my teams are going to control the line of scrimmage and we're going to be more physical. We're going to be, we're going to um, overpower you at the point of attack on both sides of the ball. That's not what Sunday Dykes teams are known for doing. Doesn't mean you can't win that way, but to your point with that being TCU's kind of biggest um, weakness um, is that necessarily what you do would you rather have someone who's going to address that and Billy Napier on the flip side as a guy who comes off the Saban tree um, and whose teams at Louisiana that's exactly how they win is um, by winning at the point of attack um, he loves to play with multiple tight ends you know like on the field at the same time loves to be uh, you know loves to win by controlling the line of scrimmage um, so to me that's part of the thing that is a, it, among many things is appealing about Billy Napier is that physical mentality and style of play that he brings to me Napier's is my number one guy as of this moment in terms of who is most attractive in terms of who they're talking to um, if he can bring that physical style if he can help TCU cultivate a talent advantage to where they can really play that way because um, part of the reason you're able to you know the all the Saban assistants do that is because that's what Saban does at Alabama. Well, Alabama can obviously do that because they have better athletes in the trenches than every team that they play, right? Um, TCU is not necessarily going to be able to do that. So obviously, I think Napier it would improve their recruiting. But on top of that, and on top of that physical attitude, can you still mold your offensive style to what fits best? What uh, in terms of what you can recruit from Texas, from DFW specifically? Um, and can you still play um, a more wide open style while still controlling the line of scrimmage and, and winning at the point of attack? So that's my biggest question with Napier. Are you going to try and play bully ball and then find out that it doesn't work? That's my really my only concern. But if you're talking about uh, bringing in someone who's going to make you more physical on both sides of the ball at the line of scrimmage, a guy who's going to improve your recruiting, a guy who's going to improve like the overall infrastructure and support of your program it really feels like a really solid move for me. Um, it's really, really interesting to me that things have gotten really quiet since like middle, late last week. Um, we haven't really heard a lot. We heard a whole lot of chatter, right? As, this, as the search started that it's Sunny Dykes or bust kind of. And then as Napier and Deion Sanders and Tony Elliott and Matt Campbell's names have all gotten mixed in there, the certainty has kind of come away from the way people are reporting it. And then Napier and Dykes kind of moved forward as these kind of top two candidates. And then everything kind of went silent. And that's really, really interesting to me. It, you know, it, does that mean that the, that TCU has kind of really decided who they want and they're going after them? 
and we're gonna find out something soon. Um, if so, like how long are we gonna be waiting? Are we gonna be waiting here for a little while uh, while that guy, whoever it is, finishes out his season? Um, we're all probably gonna have to be a little bit patient for another few weeks while we wait this situation out. We will, and I do want to come back to that timing thing because uh, it's it's a fascinating um, quandary that they could put themselves in waiting on something. But I, I did have a personnel question. So Chandler Morris had a fantastic game against Baylor. Uh, Saturday was a struggle. Eventually they put Sam Jackson in and let him throw it around a little bit as well. And he actually led the Frogs one touchdown drive of the game. But uh, – did, did anything, like, did your mind change at all about Chandler on Saturday night, Matt? Or was that just a combination of a great defense and a pretty terrible situation that he was uh, put in against a, a really good Oklahoma State team? Yeah, I mean, we said it last week. He was either going to prove that what happened against Baylor was, was exactly who he is or who was going to come – crashing back to earth a little bit and it was the latter right um to be fair to Chandler um Oklahoma State's defense is the best in the Big 12 um they are uh you know they're I think they came into the game like number two in the country in sack rate um they are like they were hassling him all day um I think contrary to the previous week where I was pretty like, oh man, look, look at Doug Meacham, like in his bag, like just, just really like I was, it was the opposite experience against Oklahoma State. I was, I was scratching my head a lot in terms of the play calling on offense um, on Saturday. And some of that's probably a, a byproduct of, of he was trying to call some stuff and it just wasn't uh, that maybe worked the previous week. It just was not working with the same, uh, this is not seen it's the same level of success against an Oklahoma State defense that really kind of knew what they wanted and, and had a game of film on Chandler Morris and, the, and, the, and this new look TCU offense that they could kind of go off. So I think they were better prepared for it. Um, I still think, and I said this last week, I, I think you roll with Chandler Morris the rest of the season, barring injury, um, just because, as we talked about last week, like Max Duggan, not healthy, obviously not 100%. And, um, you know, I'm – I do want to see how much of what happened against Baylor is, uh, is sustainable. And I think the only way you find that out is if you give them some more live game reps and, and, and see what you have. And then if you, if you get to the end of what'll be four games against Baylor, Oklahoma state, Kansas, Iowa state, and you come to find out, Oh, Chandler Morris is exactly what we thought he was at the beginning of the season, which is a backup quarterback. Um, then that's fine. But if you find out like, oh, wait, hold on, like your ceiling is higher with a quarterback who can maybe do some different things in the passing game and you can get things more wide open and who also has that escapability, um, then, then that is uh, – then you, you should find that out, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's kind of where I land with it. I, I think it, it definitely threw some cold water, I think, on, on everybody um, after uh, what was a really fun game against, against Baylor – but that um, maybe was not uh, as indicative of, of, of the way things actually are or will be long-term. Um, but it, it was a really tough situation to ask him and the whole offense to put them in um, against, again, the best defense in the Big 12. Play calling didn't do him a whole lot of favors, just like it hasn't done Max Duggan a whole lot of favors all season. His receivers didn't do him a whole lot of favors. 
just like they haven't done Max a whole lot of favors all season. So again, it's one of those things where it's like there's so many variables involved. It's hard to point to, it's hard to pull out concrete conclusions without a larger sample size. I agree. And, and I want to see him for the last two games of the year. I think we will. Uh, but yeah, Saturday was, um, it was a good reminder that these, these things are not seamless and he's not going to come out there and just set the world on fire, unfortunately, for, uh, for TCU fans. Okay, so back to the, the timing issue, because as you said, things are pretty silent right now, which that doesn't mean things aren't happening. In fact, I think we could argue that probably means things are happening. We just don't know what, what things they are. Um, but Billy Napier has sort of emerged as maybe the focus here. Um, his team is going to be playing until December 4th when they play in the Sunbelt Championship game. Uh, Matt Campbell's group, if that's still – if there's still an outside chance of that, they'll be done on Black Friday. I mean, I, these teams are playing bowl games, but I just mean the regular season. Um, so you could engage with those two in late November, early December. But, Matt, I mean, if – so if Sonny Dykes decides to stay put and then – you roll the dice with the, with Napier and Campbell and both of them say no, uh, all of a sudden you're in a really tough spot because then you're looking at Tony Elliott or primetime Deion Sanders. And at that point you are barreling towards early signing day. So um, this is a pretty, a pretty tight balancing act they have going on over the next few weeks. If they're going to try to get uh a deal done with one of their top candidates. Yeah. The thing with Napier that is most interesting to me, I agree. I think, I think timing is super key here. And, and, and this is why I said patience earlier, because it, it, I think we could get like confirmation, if not like an official announcement from the school, but I think we could get like reports confirming the deal is done before conference championship weekend. Um, cause that's usually the timing, right? It's usually around Thanksgiving, um, when like, you know, the earliest hires start, uh, to get made or, or some of the bigger hires, I guess should start to get made. I know we've already gotten a couple thus far this season, shout out Jim Moore at UConn and Clay Helton at Georgia Southern. Um, but, uh, so I think, you know, that's probably your timeline. I think so not this coming Friday, Friday, but maybe the next weekend, um, would it be when you'd be looking at, at TCU's, the news, some, you know, coming out. Um, the Napier thing, the thing that's interesting about him, yes, he's going to be competing for a Sunbelt championship in all likelihood. In addition to that, you got two really prominent SEC jobs, which it's, it's, it's no secret. Napier one day probably wants to be a head coach in the SEC which is fine. Like if you hire TC, if TCU hires Napier, you're hiring him with the understanding that it's a, it is a, um, a rental would be a strong, a, you know, a strong language to use, but like you understand it's a short-term thing um, in all likelihood, you hold on to him for somewhere between three and five years. And then he hops for another job. But the wrinkle in that is obviously the LSU job is open and by all accounts they're going after guys like Lincoln Riley, Jimbo Fisher, guys like that of that level. If they get turned down, do
do they turn toward Billy Napier? And if they turn toward Billy Napier, does he say yes? Um, and possibly does a does a does his interest in TCU, which at this point has seemed to be pretty strong, break down in favor of something else? Or Florida, which has not fired Dan Mullen yet, but could again, then very nearly they they were they were down to Samford for a long time on Saturday. Um, then they ultimately end up winning, but they gave up 50 plus points. Is that a job that opens and then also piques his interest? Um, so I think that's a weird dynamic to go through. So to me, from a TCU perspective, I'm TCU. A, I'm rooting, honestly, I'm rooting for Florida to fire Dan Mullen sooner rather than later. And here's the reason why. I think if you're TCU and you're going to hire Billy Napier, you'd rather, or Billy Napier is going to take the Florida job. I think you would rather Billy Napier either take the Florida job in 21 and, and remove, and just to remove all doubt, or you want him taking the Florida job after the next Florida coach flames out in 24, right? And you get some time with him to kind of do the program building. What you don't want, I think, is for Dan Mullen to stick around for one more year. Billy Napier just start getting started on his rebuild and then Dan Mullen leaves and then he leaves. And so you get halfway through first year of a rebuild and then you, and then you're doing a, a second coaching search in two years. So that's my, that's my galaxy brain take that if you're TCU, I think you want Florida to get rid of Dan Mullen soon. Uh, so you just kind of, if you're going to, if Billy Napier is going to ditch you for Florida, you want to know that now rather than, you know, find out in a year from now. Um, the LSU thing is interesting to me. He has not seemed like he is high up on their list for a while, but they have very lofty expectations. Again, Lincoln Riley, Jimbo yeah, Fisher, Dab Dabo Swinney has been thrown around. Um, and I'm just not sure how realistic any of those options are. And if any of those, if they end up feeling like they have to settle, um, that's a really, really, the last two head coaches at LSU have won national titles. It's a really, really good job. Um, it's one of probably the top 10 jobs in college football. Um, it would not be surprising to me if they made, if they made a late, late push for him, if he would listen in a real way. Those are, those are the things that are concerning to me timing wise and why it's going to make these next two and a half to three weeks anxious for awaiting for TC, from TCU's perspective. Yeah. LSU is kind of like your dumb friend. That's like, give me five minutes with Scarlett Johansson and I'll, I'll, I'll get that done. I'll get her number. Don't worry. <laughs> I got the charm I could turn on. Uh, that is an attractive job, though. And you made a really good point. Um, because I, I'm looking at the perspective of, like, Florida. I'm saying, keep, come on, guys. They put up 70 on Sanford. Like, keep Dan Mullen around. But I guess in some ways, yeah, worst case scenario would be he gets a, a lame duck year, they fire him, and then if in a th hypothetical world Napier was at TCU, he bolts, you know, right as he's starting to get something going, um, that would be a bad deal. So we'll have to see how all that plays out over the next few weeks and months. And, you know, and that's the thing is it could, Napier's answer could be the same, whether it's in 21 or in 22, he could say, you know what, Florida, not into it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. Um, but I think, you know, I'd like to know that answer sooner so that you, you don't have the anxiety that's involved with it. We talked about this a little bit last week. He has been, the thing that is very, very interesting to me about Napier with regards to this TCU search 
is how selective he's been with his opportunities. He obviously was an assistant under Saban in Alabama, goes to Arizona State as an, as an OC, then comes to, to Louisiana, and he's been there as the head coach. This is his fourth season. And um, has just been killing it. Is on pace for his third double-digit win season there in, in as many years, which is just unheard of. And all the while, he's gotten approached by South Carolina. He's gotten approached by Auburn. And he said thanks but no thanks to multiple SEC jobs. And so it's really interesting to me that it appears at least that TCU and Napier have gotten this far down the road with one another. And Napier hasn't already said thanks but no thanks. Um, that's very interesting to me. And I think it speaks to um, a couple things. I think it speaks to A, that TCU is a good job, which is unequivocally true. I think there are some people who are doubting whether TCU is, is a high quality job. I think, and Gary Patterson gets a ton of credit for this. It's a really, really good job. You get great facilities. You have tremendous support from the administration and from the booster base. Um, you are in an awesome situation in terms of uh, your footprint for recruiting geographically by sitting in DFW and being able to also pluck talent from Houston and from Central Texas and from East Texas, you're in a great spot, right? Um, and so it's a really, really good job. And so I think that speaks, that, that's speaking to Napier. I, I don't, I'm not reporting here. I, I, I'm imagining that, this is, that those are the things that are speaking, that are, that are informing um, his interest in the job. And then, um, you know, so it's, it's a high quality um, head coaching job in college football. And then the thing that has come up over and over again as people report about Napier and why he hasn't moved yet is just there's a level of um, there's a level of control over the way football is done at the school, and there's a level of institutional support that he wants. And I it, look at Auburn for its entire lifespan under Gus Malzahn, like that booster base. They are super super passionate. They're a little crazy, and I think uh, you know. Um, South Carolina, there are, um, you have a, you have an institution and a, and a booster base that, um, are very, very passionate, a little crazy and probably have a little bit unrealistic ex expectations and just wouldn't give him necessarily the time that he thinks he, that he would think that he would need to really get that operation up and running the way he needed. And I think the fact that he, um, is as far down the road, at least as it appears with TCU, the, the, the fact that he's as far down the road with them as he is or appears to be speaks to um, TCU, I think, is in a situation where they have an administration and a booster base, as they showed with Gary. They're not going to panic. They're going to give the guy the support that he needs. They're going to they're going to get out of the way and they're going to let him um, run the program the way that he wants. Um, and I think all of those things are highly attractive to any candidate, but they certainly seem to be things that Napier has been searching for in a job. And I think those are things that um, could be helping TCU as they try and make a run at him. The other thing that also stands out is if he really wants, you know, an SEC job um, and possibly Nick Saban's job one day at Alabama um, when Saban eventually retires, I think it's really, I think it's really hard to sell the Alabama booster base, for instance, on let's go hire the head coach from Louisiana. Let's go hire the Raging Cajuns coach. I think they're much more likely to buy in on hiring um, 
a guy at a power five school who has had a lot of success. And I think Napier realizes that. And so I think he probably knows I need to make one more jump before I can make what he would hope is the last jump of his career, which would be to Alabama or to Florida or whatever. And I think TCU, you know, no one likes to be a springboard job, but if TCU is going to be a springboard job for somebody and that springboard is going to send you to Alabama, that means you on your own are a very, very good job. And you've got a chance to really, really make an impact with this hire if you're attracting that level of candidate who has those levels of aspirations. So um, now I'm just rambling about Billy Napier and his possible career path, but it's, it, I'm excited about the possibility of him. I think it would be a great hire. I think TCU's in a really good spot here if he ends up being the guy it's going to be a really, really anxious, like two and a half to three weeks while we wait to see if this is how it actually shakes out. Billy, following the footsteps of Dennis Franchoni. That would be the, the <laughs> way to go. It turned uh, out so well for Fran. Yeah, maybe just forget the part when he got the job he wanted. Anyway, um, we're going to cover it, and hopefully we'll have some more concrete answers next Monday. I'll tell you what we'll definitely do, though, next Monday is talk about that barn burner of a tcu kansas game coming up they got the coveted three o'clock kick on espn plus big time uh game this weekend so we'll be monitoring that as well matt thank you as always that'll do it for locked on horn frogs part of the locked on podcast network